Well, hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode, we're continuing the book 15,000 Miles in a Catch by Captain Raymond Rallier de Batty, published in 1922. We're on part 10 and we're continuing chapter 6. And for all those who have come over and started to subscribe on Patreon, thank you very much for your support. That's $5 a month to be part of the crew and make sure that we can keep these books in the hands of future generations. Now on with the story. After having lived on cold victuals with not a drop of hot liquid to warm our bones, it was splendid when we found some fuel with which we could make a fire. We came to some ledges on which aina grass was growing, and it was worth more to us than gold. For this grass has long roots which are as good as firewood when dry, and we gathered a bundle of them and made a first-class bonfire on which we boiled a small kettle. Then we made tea and warmed our limbs, and Agne and I thoroughly enjoyed ourselves, and could not find it in our hearts to envy any man alive. It is astonishing how philosophical one becomes, and how one's heart expands with beneficence towards all mankind when, after a long lack of the simplest luxuries, one is able to enjoy a little creature comfort. We now had got back to the extremity of Irish Bay, where we had left our boat. We loaded it with bundles of roots for making other fires and other feasts, and rowing into the bay again, went through the narrow pass of Husker Strait, into Winter Harbour. Here we found ourselves in the happy hunting ground of the Kegulian whales. The sea was crowded with them. Their black snouts and fins made the water black. In every direction we saw them spouting, and wherever we looked there was the sun gleam of light upon a long, smooth body, a ripple of waves and a black monster gliding forward as quietly and swiftly as a torpedo on its way to deadly work. They came within a few yards of our boat, and I had the horrid fear that they might charge into us and capsize us. Agni and I almost rode our hearts out to get away from this tremendous crowd of creatures who, with a single blow, would have smashed our small craft into matchsticks. We pulled and pulled until our arms ached, and then ran to the beach of Harbour Island with a feeling of thankfulness at having escaped a very serious peril. Here, when we went on shore, we made a new and joyful discovery. Indeed, it was the most glorious find we made on Desolation Island, with the exception of the coal in Sandy Cove. My readers must not expect me to record a discovery of gold or precious stones. Our treasure trove was of base metal, but enormously valuable in our scheme of things. My excited shouts were aroused by the sight of five enormous and magnificent kettles. They were not kettles for boiling tea or cocoa, they were not really kettles at all in the ordinary sense of the word. They were the cauldrons in which men melt down blubber for seal oil, and they were five times bigger than those of our own, and therefore at least five times more useful. You may imagine, therefore, the delight with which I discovered them. It was a sight to gladden our eyes. Agni and I almost danced round them and told each other a hundred times that it was the best news we could take back with us to Captain Henry and the crew. They had been left by American sailors on this shore in 1850, probably because they had intended to return for further seal hunts, but had been frustrated by the hand of unknown fate, and nearby we found other relics. There was, for example, an old whaleboat which had been supported on a spar across two boulders. The spar had rotted in twain, and the boat had a broken back. All its paint had been washed off, and rabbits had eaten into the wood, and it was the weariest, craziest old skeleton of a derelict that could be seen on any shore. Around the boat was a lot of old iron, among which were two anchors, one of them broken and the other rust-eaten. There were also five or six old casks, all rotten and tumbling into pieces. 
One of them contained treacle into which I dipped my finger, but when I tasted it, I found it was quite sour. Most of the casks had holes gnawed into them and had become rabbit hutches for happy families. Only one cask had remained untouched by wind and weather and small beasts with sharp teeth. I wondered at this, but soon discovered the reason for its escape. It was full of salt, which had preserved the wood and kept off the rabbits who had no appetite for this article of diet. It was, of course, impossible to carry back even one of the giant blubber kettles. It would have sent us to the bottom like a stone. So after lingering around them for some time, we decided to set out again on the homeward journey in high spirits at the good news we brought with us. We should have to bring the J.B. Charcot to Harbour Island to fetch these precious things. But we did not get back to Gazelle Basin without trouble and peril. One of our northwest gales blew up, fierce and threatening. From the north, the wind came thundering down, breaking heavily upon the islands, so that it was impossible for a small boat to live in such high seas. It was lucky for us that we had not put our boat out before the warning came, and there was nothing for it but to settle down as comfortably as we could on shore and wait until fairer weather set in. For three days, then, we were prisoners on Harbour Island, and our patience was severely tried. But like true seamen, we made ourselves as comfortable as possible in the position. At night, we made a big fire with the old casks near our tent, and I went forth and shot some penguins and ducks. These we cooked at the fire, comforting ourselves with the delightful smell of the roasting flesh and enjoying the anticipation almost as much as the realisation of the meal. Indeed, there was but little to do except eating and sleeping, and we had some great feasts. I shall never forget the sight of Agne squatting on his haunches before that fire which he nursed so tenderly and picking the bones of a duck with quiet and diligent delight. We had one or two books with us, and these we read in that howling wilderness with studious interest. They were volumes out of my school chest. I remember I had La Fontaine's fables, always delightful, amusing, shrewd and wise, and Agne was absorbed in Voltaire's History of Charles XII of Sweden. It excited him tremendously, and it is a proof of Voltaire's immortal genius and of the intelligent mind of Agne that this simple seaman should be so thrilled by this historical study. But as I have said, Agne had a good brain, and if he had had his chance of a superior education, he would have made full use of the privilege. I think my readers would be amused and interested if they could get a clear mental vision of us at that time, sitting there under the shelter of great rocks, over which the wind came shrieking and howling, close to the storm-tossed sea, rolling ceaselessly in fierce breakers upon the jagged and rugged shore, our tent flapping and swaying, our fire smouldering and ever and anon bursting into long curling tongues of flame, the smell of roast penguin making a sweet incense to our nostrils, and clean-picked bones lying around as the relics of former feasts, and Agne and I, dirty, dishevelled, hairy, disreputable-looking ruffians, studying the pages of La Fontaine and Voltaire. Agne, during our tramp overland and during our nights in camp, had, as I have already remarked, the solace, which I did not share, having no taste that way, of smoking his pipe. Once, an awful tragedy threatened to overwhelm him, for, in stumbling over the rocks, he lost the bowl of his pipe, and, realising his loss some little time afterwards, stood aghast and dismayed. Knowing that no further exploration could be made if Agne could not smoke, for he was a bond slave to tobacco, I shared his search for the old black bowl, and, after poking and peering about, was lucky enough to find it. Agne's gratitude was touching and profound. 
He thanked me as warmly as if I had saved him from a horrible death. So all was well for a little while. But when we were held prisoners on Harbour Island, another misfortune overtook us, for Agne ran clean out of tobacco. He searched every pocket for any shred of the precious weed and sucked his empty pipe fiercely and piteously, but it was all of no avail. My comrade was suffering diabolical torments and his temper was breaking him under the strain. I took pity on him. Bad weather or good weather, we must get back to the J.B. Charcot and to the tobacco jar. As a matter of fact, there was little improvement in the weather and a tremendous sea was running. But we put on the life belts which we usually carried in the boat and launched her on the turbulent waves. It was a reckless adventure, but what of this when a man is craving for a smoke? We succeeded in rounding the point to make Pigeon Harbour, but this was the worst part of the passage, and there were many times when I believed our last hour had come. We were out in the full blast of the north gale, and our rowing boat was a mere cockle shell tossed upon the vast billows. We rowed and rowed, more like machines than men, and sometimes we descended into terrible abysses with a mountain of water bearing down upon us as though it would smash us into nothingness. And then, by a kind of miracle, we were riding upon the summit of that rolling sea, until again we shot down into the chasm below another oncoming precipice. It needed all our strength and all our skill to keep the nose of the boat forward to those stupendous seas. If they had caught us broadside, we should have been cracked like a nutshell. Fortunately, Agne was an expert boatman, and he had immense strength and a courage that never faltered. And yet, as the hours passed and we were still rowing for our lives, it seemed that our strength could hold out no more. We were, after all, just puny straws before the mighty force of irresistible nature. Once or twice in every minute, I looked at Agne to see if he were weakening, but with his teeth clenched and a grim look upon his face, he bent to his oars, and his stroke was always steady and strong. Now and again, when we rose high in that long seesaw, we caught a swift glimpse of the rugged shore with the white sea foam, like smoke about its rocks, and this gave us new courage, for we knew that if we had great luck, we should get into the shelter of Gazelle Basin, where the J.B. Charcot lay at anchor. This luck was ours, and after five hours in the open sea, battling all the time with its fury, we were hailed by our friends, who were ready to drag us ashore. They had seen us for a long time. Filled with the deepest anxiety and almost breathless with suspense, they had watched us appear for a moment on the high peak of water, and then dip down into the great caverns, and then rise again just like a bobbing cork in the monstrous waves, but always drawing a little nearer as each mountain tumbled upon us and upheaved us and swept us forward. My brother gripped my hand when at last I sprang out of the boat and staggered up the beach in a dazed and drunken way. And then Agne turned round to his comrades very calmly and said, I'll thank you for a plug of tobacco, friends. Chapter 7 Henry, my brother, was enchanted to hear of our discovery of the great blubber kettles on Harbour Island, that is excellent news, he said, and straight away we decided to take our small ship out of Gazelle Basin, where she had lain so snugly, to fetch those valuable pots. We were wise enough, however, to wait until the gale was spent. Even then, we started too soon, for in Kagulian one gale is quickly followed by another, and as I have to tell you, we had the nearest squeak in sea-going destruction. The capture of the blubber kettles nearly cost us our ship and our lives, and when I remember the adventure that befell us, I marvel that I am now writing the account of it. It was ten days after my return with Agne that we heaved up the anchor, 
put up our canvas and, leaving Gazelle Basin, stood out into the open sea. No sooner had we got as far, and it was not very far, than we faced a nasty wind and an ugly sea. From the north came one of those abominable gales which howl almost unceasingly upon the island of desolation, and we had to beat up against it, painfully and arduously, with a little charcoal lurching and staggering like a poor wounded beast, and with the infernal wind buffeting her with brutal blows. It was mad to force our brave boat into the jaws of such a devouring gale, and, reluctantly enough, we ran for Pigeon Harbour and cowered there for two days until our patience was quite spent. Agne had risked his life and mine for a pipe of tobacco. Henry and I were just as ready to run risks for those precious kettles, so we made a second attempt to get to Harbour Island and again slipped out to sea. But the wind was as bad as ever and the waters were in convulsions. Every gust tearing at us with the force of a thunderbolt threatened to snap our masts into splinters and tear our canvas to ribbons. Frenchmen, as we were, impatient of the word retreat and without the slow enduring patience of the Saxon race, we cursed the gale and surrendered to the inevitable. We swung round and raced for Sandy Cove, where we had found the safest shelter before. We reached this harbour and ran home and lowered our anchors. Here was safety anyhow, we thought, and tried to forget the kettles for a little while. But we did not count upon the malign vengeance of that wind from whose clutches we had slipped away. It would not be balked. Suddenly, that roaring north gale banged around the compass to the southwest. The little Charcot was caught between two running seas and captured by the new wind, and though she resisted gallantly, both anchors dragged, and we swung astern onto the rocks. Our feelings may be imagined, but not described. After all our adventures, our long voyaging, our careful vigilance, here was our brave ship stuck upon a rocky ledge in the shelter of a cove which we had learnt to call home. Having escaped from the North Gale, we had been fairly caught by the Southwester, and there seemed to be the most deadly likelihood of losing our ship forever. If the wind blew hard from the same quarter, we should be fastened more securely upon those rocks, and slowly but surely the J.B. Charcot would be battered and broken before our eyes. Henry and I were terribly alarmed, though outwardly calm and confident. We had to set an example to our men, and kept our heads well screwed on, but our hearts sank very low. The first thing to do was to make all arrangements for a long shore life in the event of losing the ship. I therefore called for the shipwreck bag, and all of us were hard at work hauling up provisions and stores. Then Henry ordered a boat to be lowered so that we might take a rope ashore and convey the goods to land. It was difficult and dangerous work. The southwest gale beat the boat back several times, and the tide ran very strong. There was more than a chance of losing a life or two in addition to the loss of the ship, but eventually we succeeded in running the boat aground, tied the rope fast to a rock, and landed sailcloth for tents, biscuits, tinned meats, tools, matches, guns, spirit cans and spirit lamp, the sextant, nails and other stores which would enable us to live until rescue came. Meanwhile, the tide was running out, and the lower it got, the higher rose the stern of the J.B. Charcot on that infernal rock, until the deck was in an awful slant, and the bows were pitched down as though the ship were about to bury its way into the sea floor. Henry and I knew that the greatest danger would come when the tide rose again. Then we should see whether we were to lose or save our ship. When that spring tide rose, it would bring with it a force that would either float us off or break us on the rock. No one could say beforehand which of these two things would happen. We could only wait, with sickening anxiety and the torture of hope and fear fighting a duel in our hearts. Yet so strong is habit and so good is discipline, 
we sat down to our evening meal in the cabin as though nothing were amiss. Esno had cooked the dinner as usual, although the galley was at a queer angle and the cabin was pitched up at one end so that we had to cling to our plates to prevent them from slipping off the table. Few of us had any appetite. Sadness is a bad source, and we were all very sad at the thought that this might be our last meal on the J.B. Charcot. Only LaRose was quite calm. To me, his calmness, sublime and unassailable, was at that hour irritating and exasperating. I wanted to hit him, to shake him out of that fat and comfortable tranquility, to make him shout and get excited. Yet when I look back upon that meal, I am filled with admiration for the simple stolidity of that young seaman. His appetite did not suffer. He ate with the steady veracity which never, but once, failed him during our voyage and wanderings. I do not think that LaRose had less heart than any of us, but his hunger had to be satisfied, you understand. He was like the immortal Porthos in the Three Musketeers. Finally, the tide rose with the darkness, and as it crept inch by inch up the rock on which our stern was stuck, I was in a fever of apprehension, varied with a torturing hope. Gradually, the bows lifted. The slant of the deck became less acute. The cabin shifted back in more horizontal lines, and our hope became more settled in our hearts. The wind had abated, the sea was more tranquil, the J.B. Charcot was now like a ship at anchor. Suddenly her stern gave a great knock, and all her timbers trembled with the shock, and our hearts leapt into our mouths. The blow was repeated, and then once again, and each time it seemed to us that the bottom of our boat was being staved in. But after the third knock, there was a scraping, tearing noise, which made our blood run cold, and then... We breathed with thankfulness. Our ship was afloat. She had slipped off the rock and was in her full depth of water as a ship should be. I think Henry and I were very grateful to Providence, which had been so kind to us. I think I came very near to tears of sheer joy. We were like children for a little while. To us, the J.B. Charcot was a living thing. We knew the spirit of her. We loved her gallantry. Her loss would have been more than the destruction of senseless timbers. We should have mourned the death of a good friend. We therefore rejoiced exceedingly and laughed with gladness when we found her floating again. She had not even sprung a leak. Her sturdy timbers were sound and whole. All that night we worked hard to get her to safer anchorage, with a flare on board casting a weird and flickering light upon the dark cliffs and the ink-black waters, we worked with winch and cable to haul her further into shelter, and at last cast anchor in good ground where she held fast. We had no sleep, and were very tired, but when the morning came, we were very happy, for there was no need of the shipwreck bag on shore, and we gaily brought it back to the ship with the other stores. But still, all the while... Those blubber kettles were waiting for us in Harbour Island, and we wanted them badly. So after two or three days, we left again, and this time without serious trouble, sailed through Tang Pass and lay close off Harbour Island. We got our kettles at last, or at least two of them. It was not an easy job to bring them on board, and we put them afloat and towed them in a rowing boat to the side of the J.B. Charcot, and then lowered Takel and hauled them on deck. They were a most valuable addition to our sealing equipment and worth all the trouble we had taken to secure them. Now another strong gale came on. My readers will get tired of these gales, but not so tired as we were. You see, round the island of desolation, they were almost without cessation, and our life was always disturbed by the danger of them. 
It was then about the 1st or 2nd of July and midwinter at Kogulian, and that month and the next were the worst we had. Hardly a day of fine weather came to give us a little comfort. We worked and ate and slept and watched, with the wind howling round us, with seas running high, with sudden squalls shrieking at us, with no peace when we might relax our vigilance. And when we were off Harbour Island, the gale blew with a strength strange even to Kogulian, so that we had to cling to masts and ropes to save ourselves from riding on the wind, and even heavy things like ship's buckets were blown away as if they had been mere strips of paper. I never saw anything like the force of it. It seemed to rattle the very bones in our bodies, and it swept through the rigging with tearing, yelling rage. We had to put double lashings on our furled sails to save them from being torn into strips, and everything on deck, including our rowing boats, had to be fastened down with stronger ropes. Our anchor chains were strained so taut that we expected them to break at any moment, but fortunately we had found a good bottom of sticky mud so that the anchors could not drag. We left Harbour Island on the 8th of July for Gazelle Basin and had a good, strong, carrying wind at the start, but on the 9th of July it shifted and we had our first gale from the east. Then it dropped to southeast and stayed there and this brought a heavy snowstorm, the worst we saw at Kogulian. It snowed as though the heavens were falling upon us in thick white flakes. It buried our ship with a pure white cargo, soft as down upon the deck and spars and anchor chains and wheel and compass box and rigging, so that our ship was transformed into a snowbird. Kogulian was no longer the island of desolation, black and grim. It was an island of white enchantment. Every high mountain range, every peak and precipice and terrace and ledge was covered with this cloak of ermine. For miles, one could see the snow-capped hills losing their accustomed outlines under the burden of those heavy, falling flakes. The valleys were six feet deep in snow, which remained there for three weeks. Beautiful as the scenery was, in this white disguise, the weather was very unpleasant and disagreeable to us, and seriously interrupted our work in Gazelle Basin, to which we had now returned. There would be a heavy snow squall, every ten minutes with brief intervals of bright sunshine, during which the country sparkled and glittered with an almost blinding radiance until it became overcast again and a new squall obscured the view. Well, that's the end of today's chapter. We're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship, and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going round. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up, to the mate level, and there, for $20 a month, you get access to the one-hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month, which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty-gritty of it, and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today, so I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound, and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.